listening to Sugar House Sound. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Sugar House Sound. This is part of a series featuring guest lecturers to Westminster College. This episode is a conversation with Dr. Amy Foley from Scott Community College with Westminster students Ocean Candler and Kira Suki. They discuss habitable spaces, the language of protection, and sex education, in particular what that means for people who are differently abled. Keep your eyes open for another episode of Sugar House Sound with Amp Summers. My name is Dr. Amy Foley, and I teach at Scott Community College in Iowa. I teach composition, literature, and I also teach a course that is called Freaking Out, Defining the Normal and the Abnormal, in which we explore the history of disabilities. It is focused probably more on physical disabilities and that history, but we do also get into cognitive disabilities. My research focuses specifically on the language of protection, and I've examined the language of protection in sort of several contexts, one of those being operations of normalization performed on infants who are born intersexed, also the language of protection when it comes to issues of disabilities, and the language of protection when it comes to issues of race and immigration, and the supposed threat that that poses to a supposedly vulnerable national body. Hello, my name is Ocean Candler, and I am a sophomore here at Westminster College. I am majoring in public health with a minor in gender studies. My focus here at Westminster on campus is sex education and sex positivity. I have been teaching throughout the community of Salt Lake City since I was in high school on sex education as much sex education as I can possibly teach here in Utah. Um, It's quite limiting. And then moving into college, I have volunteered with Students for Choice since starting college. And I've started programs such as Res Nights, which are education programs for the dorms, as well as the Condom Olympics, which is basically just like an easy, fun environment to talk about sex and learn about sex. I am Kiara Suki. I'm a sophomore here at Westminster College. I'm a public health major with a minor in psychology, and a lot of my work has been around disability studies and interacting and getting engaged with the community of individuals with disabilities or that are differently able. I think something to keep in mind as as we're talking about this is that none of us are totally experts on any of this, nor are we perfect in um, finding the right words and the right language for people or for practices at all points in time. And that's something that we're kind of wading through ourselves. And so as we have this discussion, that may be something that we even struggle with at times, but keeping in mind that, you know, that's part of the process and that's okay to kind of use language that sometimes forces you to step back and say, oh, maybe that was not the best word choice or phrase or whatever. And and again, I think that's okay when discussing something that makes you uncomfortable and moving through that space of being uncomfortable with it is part of what helps us to be able to really meaningfully dialogue about these issues. 
In my own experiences, I grew up in a family with both of my parents were special education teachers uh, at the high school level. And they started a, like, a unified basketball program, which allows individuals with cognitive and physical disabilities to play basketball and be a part of other sports and get them out into the community. So I grew up in going to those activities and having the athletes be like brothers and sisters to me. And that really inspired me to work with people with disabilities in the community as I grew up. So I've worked for a program called Garden Autism, which takes individuals with autism and they go on lots of different excursions and we do a lot of different activities to get individuals out in the community. What's the response that you often receive when you're working with those people out in the community from others in the community who would be generally considered to be able-bodied? Well, there's lots of different responses, but a lot of times one of the biggest things I've noticed is there's a fear, and I don't know if it's a fear of the unknown. A lot of times when people meet an individual with disability, they they do not know what to expect of that interaction, or maybe they haven't had many interactions with an individual with disability before, and they're afraid of how they should react or how that individual might react. I also found that occasionally individuals will <laughs> approach me and ask how an individual, like example would be what I was talking about with the ice cream. We were out one day and I was with an individual with a disability and I was approached to ask if she would like ice cream, where she was very capable of saying whether or not she would like ice cream, but I was approached as the gatekeeper almost for her, what her desires are and what she, what her likes and dislikes are. It was almost like there was a focus on the disability instead of the ability. And I think that's something that often comes up when um, individuals with disabilities are out in the community and how the community sees those individuals. So I think that's a really interesting phrase, the gatekeeper. I think it's really important that we think about language and how we do tell the stories of others sometimes too. But I do think it's really problematic how we tend to think about having a sort of gatekeeper for those people who are differently abled. And this isn't necessarily the case in your circumstance because you're not trying to speak for them. This individual who asked you this is assuming that you speak for them. But I think even with the best intentions, sometimes we can be guilty of doing that as well. In academic spaces, so as an instructor who teaches about disability and who talks a lot about disability, it's important for me to always kind of remain conscious of the fact that I can be operating as that form of a gatekeeper too, as a kind of person who might be continuing to provide narrative for someone else's voice in a way that exploits that person or takes away from their voice. One of the examples that comes to mind with this is I teach the elephant man in my class, the play and the film. The Elephant Man was John Merrick. His story is told through multiple layers of sort of narrative. So we start by looking at the play, The Elephant Man, which is by Bernard Pomerantz. And then we watch the David Lynch 1980s film adaptation. And Lynch is basing his work kind of on the work of Pomerantz. And then Pomerantz is basing his work mostly on the memoirs of the doctor, Frederick Treves, who worked with John Merrick. 
And so we have all these processes of storytelling and narrativizing his body and his life to say, what does it mean? So let's look at it through these multiple lenses. And it's really a difficult process for me as an instructor because we're kind of doing the same thing. We're looking at it and saying, what does this mean? And I think you know, we are focused more on the response to him. That's what we're concentrating on. And that's what we're really analyzing rather than him and his body. But still, is there a way in which we're still sort of making a sort of sideshow of him in that sense? And I think that's an important moment to think about that no matter what we're doing, even when we're trying to advocate for someone that we're not, the phrase I'm using, I'm borrowing from Michael Gills, already doing it. And I think he's actually borrowing from someone else in talking about it, but the ghosting of a subject where through these narratives, we lose touch with that actual subject. And I think that in academia, I think we're always kind of in danger of doing that. We always have to be stepping back and evaluating our relationship to coercion and consent and to violation and exploitation. And I think that that's an interesting way of seeing that come out is that that gatekeeper notion of I need to speak with someone else in order to hear this voice. And while we can acknowledge that certainly there are different levels of ability and some people do not have the ability to communicate that often they do. And the assumption that assumption is really problematic, too. That definitely ties into my expertise, which is more about sex education. We've been having all of these discussions about how do we change the language of sex ed to create like a habitable space for people that are differently abled and so I think that like having that training and that knowledge on how do we cater this curriculum whether it is sex ed or whether it is college classroom or a high school classroom how do we change language and create this safe space for people that are differently abled to excel in one of my courses that I took here at Westminster we talked a lot about well who has the right to have sex people that are marginalized or oppressed they oftentimes are deemed as like people that are not allowed to procreate or not allowed to get this proper education that people that are deemed as normal are getting kind of with sex education it is a lot more dense but basically for me my views on sex education within people that are not able-bodied is very minimal I think that the education that's happening with sex is very limited for um, non-able-bodied people because we have this assumption that they aren't sexual and their desires don't exist and so we as able-bodied people are putting this voice to them and assuming that they don't have these desires that are natural. And so therefore, we already provide such a lack of sex education to people overall, but then to people that are differently abled, we provide no education. And that becomes extremely problematic when they do get into situations where maybe they are with a partner and they are experiencing like sexual behavior. And then people in that on the outside, like able-bodied people will look and deem it as wrong or deem it as dangerous because they have like different ways of providing consent and having discussions, whether they are verbal or nonverbal. For me, like my big thing is sex positivity and providing education for those that are teaching. And so kind of trying to figure out this line, like especially with consent, we talk a lot about enthusiastic yes, but for people that are nonverbal, like how do we change that language to make consent applicable to them is really what I find 
really problematic and really interesting because then people that are able-bodied, they can look back and be like, well, they didn't provide an enthusiastic yes. And it becomes this really problematic situation. And we're almost like speaking for those that have experienced this sexual experience that are not able-bodied. So... I think that it's really important to, you know, this sort of sex positive take on this issue and working against those assumptions to go back to that aspect, but working against those assumptions that because one is cognitively disabled or physically disabled, that they don't, you know, possess sexual desires or that those sexual desires are somehow shamed. Or even in Michael Gill's work, he talks about how masturbation is like the only permissible form of, you know, acceptable sexuality for people with disabilities because... A lot of times the group home settings or other settings that they're in where there's these caretakers who are, again, the gatekeepers, you know, okay, well, you can go have this sort of time to yourself, but any other forms of sexuality aren't really talked about or encouraged. So I think that's really important. And then I think the other aspect of what you were saying that I wanted to respond to has to do with the issue of pity and how pity infiltrates or colors how so often those who are able-bodied or neurotypical, that colors how they understand the desires of those who are different from themselves. And so that pity so often gets wrapped up in that understanding of who that individual is. And that's really problematic because I kind of want to share a quote from Michael Gill's work. But essentially the idea there is that pity can't ever be something in which another person is equal because when you look at another individual and feel pity for them, the assumption is that there's a sort of condescension there, right? Or that I'm higher than you. And I think that feeling bad for these people, right? And I'm putting that in air quotes, but feeling bad for them is partially what I think negates the ability of others to see them as sexual beings as well. They're just this poor sort of victim of circumstance. And there's also that assumption, of course, that their quality of life can't be nearly that of those who are able-bodied or neurotypical. And all of that is there when considering or thinking about that individual as a sexual being or not thinking of them as a sexual being. This just like reminded me when you were talking about, so in your piece of writing, the problem of protection, rethinking rhetoric of normalizing surgeries, I was reading it and I think that along with pity, a common theme like within like your research is protection. And so I think that tying it back to these two able-bodied people being these gatekeepers, it's this whole idea of protection. We feel the need as able-bodied people to protect these victims, protect these people that are not deemed as normal. And I think that really ties into, for me, like sex education, whether you are able-bodied or not, there's this whole well, we don't need to teach them everything because we are protecting them. When really we're not teaching them about protection, we're not teaching them about these situations of violence and coercion, and we're just forcing them to be naive about the subject. Which is its own form of coercion. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that it's really interesting because then it ties into your research with forced surgeries, especially like in infants. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you know a lot more about this than I do. But with forced surgeries, this infant is born and they are not deemed as normal. There is a birth abnormality or something of that sort. And so then the doctor like goes to the parents and is like, hey, this is what's going on. This is not normal. We need to change it. They're not really given 
the full medical explanation for it, whether it's necessary or not. It's just not normal. So something needs to change. And so I think that that's like really interesting because I found when I've done research on intersex surgeries is a lot of people talk about how the doctors will go to the families and be like, this is for their protection because there's this whole idea of normalizing and what is normal. And so we're saving this child from experiencing marginalization and oppression because they're not normal. So I just was wondering, you clearly know a lot more about this. and. I don't know how much I really know more than you do about it, but I would say to connect it back to what we're talking about, I think the language of protection is something that can be so dangerous, and I do think it's applicable here. And Gil does touch on this, too, in already doing it, which is that that's the desire often. And, you know, I I don't think that... That's always a negative feeling, the desire to protect. But I think we often look at it through a very singular lens and say, okay, I'm just going to protect this person from the social and the dangers of the social. All these other forms of coercion that can be present there sort of get erased in that process. And, you know, Gil talks about a case in which a woman is raped and she is cognitively disabled and he is he does actually experience some other issues i think as such as depression um, that aren't really discussed at all in the context of the case either the assumption is and this isn't to say that gill is arguing that this woman wanted this by any means but the assumption that is present in all of the legal rhetoric around the case is that it's not possible for her to have desired it. So, and, and again, he's not arguing she wanted it, okay? What he is arguing is that we oftentimes eclipse even the possibility of that sexual desire because they're not seen as sexual beings. And that desire to protect sometimes forecloses those other possibilities of desire that are present there, that are plural and multiple and, you know, sometimes not vocalized in more sort of dominant ways of understanding vocalization or consent or desire or any of that. And so I think it's about also to go back to what you were talking about, Ocean, is to sort of pluralize our understandings of how we can speak and how we can communicate and how we can desire. I think the biggest thing that I'm noticing is how do we start this conversation to talk about these ideas like in the community and talk about sex among individuals of different abilities? And maybe what are some like ableist language keywords that people should use or be wary of using when talking about this subject or when they're in the community? So I think that a lot of times people are so afraid of saying the wrong thing that they won't even say anything at all. And I think it's okay to ask, oh, how would you prefer that I refer to this? Or what is the best way for me to go about talking about this? Or be okay with someone saying, hey, that's maybe not the right word we use and being like, oh, I'm sorry, what would you prefer? And just knowing that you're gonna make mistakes, but that's okay, as long as you're willing to make the changes. Some of the words that I think we use so commonly in our daily lives without even thinking about what they really mean. Some of those words are like crazy, or the R word, retarded, insane. So I have a question for you after what you just talked about. Do you feel like, because this is not my area of expertise, but do you feel the training that is provided to educators and to people out in the community 
Do you think that there's enough training to handle the, maybe these uncomfortable situations for educators and knowing how to change this language so that people with cognitive and physical disabilities are able to thrive in our society as far as like getting an education, graduating from high school, going to college? How do you feel about the resources that they're provided and how they can kind of do better? I think that there are some discussions about it, but a lot of times it's not talked about. Or if it is talked about, it's talked about in a specific area of study. So it would be among the special education program that has these trainings and classes. But maybe among, like in high schools, the history teachers, maybe it's not talked about. And it's very centered around one, like a specific group instead of the community as a whole. And so I think providing those trainings and places where that can be talked about and people can ask questions about like what is the right thing to do and say is definitely necessary and needed. The high school that I went to, there was a lot of interaction with individuals with disabilities or in the special education program. And they were in our regular classes, so like our history classes. And sometimes they would have a paraprofessional there with them for extra assistance. But there was also some PE classes and they were around in our lunchroom. And you saw these individuals everywhere throughout the day and they weren't separated. And in some cases they had different classes to best like meet their abilities, but it wasn't something that was hidden. And then moving to a different state and talking to different people, I realized that experience that I thought was so common and that everyone had, and that's just how it was, wasn't necessarily the case for all individuals. And that it definitely, the openness to have individuals of all abilities in a community for one area is not how it is in another area. And there's still a lot of work to be done in providing those spaces. So I think like you moved to the state of Utah, right? And we're a little shocked. So <laughs> I think that there's like this massive scary cloud around Utah of fear, like with everything, every controversial problem, every sort of thing that is not normal in our society is kind of hidden, tucked away because we're so scared here in Utah. I have a lot of problems with the state that I was raised in. But to bounce back to what you were talking about, I grew up in Utah. I went through the whole education system here in Utah and my experience was extremely different. We had I work at an after school program and like I love the school. It's a great school in the Salt Lake City School District. But one thing that has really shocked me is there's this one section of the school, which is where like all people that are differently abled go. And that's it. Like you don't see them. They are just over in that hallway. And I found the same thing in my high school where it was just like this is the hallway where all the people with air quotes special needs go. And they were very isolated. They didn't really interact with those that were able-bodied. And I think that caused, from my experience, a lot of problems as far as fear and like how to address and like change this language. Because for me growing up here, as sad as it is, like 
I was never around people of all abilities, which I think has been something that I've been lacking because I want to be in education and I want to be an educator. And I think that it also provided a lot of problems in my high school with this whole savior complex. So I noticed like my peers would help out in classrooms where people that are differently abled could get better education for their needs. And I think it's great as an outsider to be like, awesome, like all of these people as a community are helping everyone. And that to me is beautiful. But also the backlash of that was people that are able-bodied didn't do it for the right reason. So my peers that would go into these classrooms in this special hallway would take pictures with people that might have like cognitive or physical disabilities to kind of create this like savior image and kind of put themselves on a pedestal and be like, look at me. I am with someone that is different than what is normal in our society. And so I think that creates like a very uncomfortable barrier for those that are not able-bodied. And I think that like the whole idea of segregating people that are different And I think that's like a common theme like throughout history and throughout throughout our nation is just like segregating people that are different for like the comfortability of those that are normal. And I think this connects back to, I think this was mentioned at the very beginning, but the idea of habitable spaces. So who gets to be comfortable where is, I think, a really important question. But, you know, when we talk about habitable, we're talking about what's livable. And so we've talked about, you've talked about resources to education, access to, you know, interacting with the community. These are things that we should be able to have to to live a life that's worth living. And actually, Adrienne Ash, she's a bioethicist, and she points out that in studies of disabilities, oftentimes when people report sort of low quality of life, it has to do either with things that all of us report as, oh, I can't find a job and et cetera, et cetera, or my boyfriend broke up with me or whatever, you know, things that people experience that everyone experiences or oftentimes not having access to resources that would allow them to participate more fully in life and in the social. So I think there's a difference between spaces that are livable in spaces that encourage nurturing or flourishing. And right now we're talking about creating spaces that are more livable for more people, people who fall outside of the norm, people who are marginalized by dominant society. And as you've noted, there's a long history of not just isolating or segregating those who are different, but also trying to eradicate those who society considers to be unfit, unfit for sexual desire and reproduction, unfit as potential parents and trying to eradicate that. There's some interesting stages of history in which there's conflict in feminist movement, for instance, when there's conflict over a lot of white feminists wanting rights to abortion. Meanwhile, a lot of women of color at the time were arguing against the forced sterilization that they were undergoing. And so there was some conflict there. And I think that the kind of history of, of people who have been the targets of not just the eugenics movement proper in the 20s or the early 20th century in general when eugenics kind of cropped up and was like there was actually like fields of study going on at that time of you know what are good genes or good blood or good race or breed or stock and that desire to eradicate that from spaces which are inimical potentially a threat to that space and we can see that in rhetoric everywhere right now I'm sorry I'm going (laughs) off on a tangent but I mean every time Trump opens his mouth that's what he's talking 
talking about these sort of minority or marginalized things or people that are a threat to the dominant supposedly you know once pure kind of comfortable for everyone space but of course we have to ask who was that space really comfortable for ever right and in addition to that, look at the history in which we've seen the attempt to eradicate, again, those things that are supposedly inimical or burdensome to society. So those with disabilities, those who are impoverished, those who are not white, and the long history of trying to eradicate that. And we can see that in the lack of, you know, so how do we without sort of eugenics proper, how do we eradicate the reproduction of that which threatens the sort of comfortable, homogenous, dominant space, right, is deny access to resources. We can see some of this. And I mean, if we look at what's going on with healthcare and like, okay, so who, of course, is the the proposed healthcare bill going to hurt the most? Poor people, people of color. We're going to deny them healthcare because lack of access to healthcare means less health, less well-being. And so also could result in less reproduction of that. And so I I think there is an attempt to eradicate that which is other than and certainly like I do think right now that's racially very, very intense as well with. Yeah. But and even something like the potential elimination of some of these after school programs that a lot of people who are living in poverty are dependent on, whether they're, you know, a single parent or a, a home in which both parents are, are present and working to, you know, just put food on the table and these after school programs that are getting cut and like, where are those kids going to go? You know, and the elimination of Meals on Wheels, all these budget blueprint things. There's some root of eugenics there because there's a desire to rid society of that which is considered burdensome. And again, like the stripping away of educational rights, disability services that are available to students. I mean, I think that's the same thing, right? It's it's an effort to get rid of this. So I think the hiding away and the isolating are issues that are also sometimes connected to that, which is not only do I want to hide it away, I want to actually get rid of it altogether. And the hiding away is just one step in that process. So when you see, for instance, that different model in which there are there's integration or when you're going out, Kira, into the community and saying, OK, let's let's interact. I think that is distinctly an effort to say, I want to change the way these spaces work and who it's habitable for. And I'm not going to accept this dominant notion that your body is not allowed in this space or this space shouldn't be habitable for you. And we do have to work to challenge that because otherwise I do think, you know, there's so much violence that can happen as a result of sort of not working actively against that. So I think we brought up some really important topics and conversations and I want to thank you, Dr. Foley, for coming to talk to us. 